This week, it's all about the future of farming, an industry without pesticides. Well, we'll look at the research which could change agriculture, though perhaps not for another decade. Some of the active ingredients we've got will will have disappeared well, before we've actually got things uh, in place. Also, a future without Louth Livestock Market, as it's the latest to be considered for closure. Times have changed. Many farmers now take their animals to Newark. And a future without slaughter. We hear from the owners of the UK's first slaughter-free dairy farm. The milking cows are retired once the productive days are over. All of the oxen, they all grow up to be fully grown oxen. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Good morning. If I said we're talking biopesticides and biological control on our farms, would you know what I was talking about? Uh, with issues such as lack of actives and resistance, that recent report being questioned by Bayer on uh, neonics and bees, it's an issue that's ever more in farmers' minds. Simon Leather is Professor of Entomology at Harper Adams University. He's been explaining to Andrew Ward just what it's all about and some of the research that they're currently conducting. Start with biological control, uh, because that's sort of the the parent. Uh, So biological control is where you use another organism, and it could be a predatory a predator or a parasite or a disease to control your pest organism. And basically what it does, it reduces the populations of the pest down to below your economic injury level, your economic threshold, so it doesn't cause damage anymore. Mm-hmm. Biopesticides are a sort of specialisation within biocontrol, because normally people associate biocontrol with things like ladybirds, things you can see. Mm. The biopesticide end of the market is where you're actually using the diseases of the pests. So things like viruses, things like bacteria, things like fungi, which uh, we, we also associate with diseases with us. Well, insects and weeds have them too. And basically a biopesticide is using one of these natural diseases uh, in a targeted way to control your disease, your weed or your pest. And how long have you been sort of uh, looking at this this work? Oh, okay, so I've been involved with biopesticides for ooh, 25, 30 years. Oh, right, <laughs> so a long while. Yeah. But, but, I mean, when you start looking at the problems we have yeah. in the UK with resistance and things, yeah. obviously, you know, some of this you could say maybe we should have been already using commercially. Uh, yeah, I think um, biopesticides uh, were perhaps ignored slightly because people were perhaps concentrating more on the the more charismatic end Mm. of biological control, the things they could see. And there's always been a slight resistance from the public to use diseases Mm. because... um, doesn't matter that how safe they are and the, the things we use the biopesticides we use are incredibly specific they only attack uh, say the insect they, and some of them are so specific they only attack one species of insect but because you mentioned say virus and people see the sort of things they do to the insect people worry Ooh, what happens if that virus got into us and we exploded yes. uh, so there has been this um, bit of public resistance I remember them trying against a forestry pest the Oxford Institute of Virology, way back in the 1980s, uh, tried to do a trial where they would release a very specific virus that only attacked a very dangerous forest pest, and they weren't allowed to because the public made such a, a, 
the fuss about it. And that's, I think, is um, perhaps we weren't educating people mm. enough. And now I think people are perhaps more aware that these are highly specific. Uh, they reduce the need for using uh, chemical pesticides, so they're much better for the environment. So, yeah, I think that's probably where we should be looking uh, at in much more detail. Now. How many years away or how far away are we from this on a commercial, large-scale arable situation? Uh, I would think we're maybe looking, you know, within 10 years, anyway. Mm, yeah. uh, it's, it's not an impossible future. Uh, no. With a, with a, with a, you know, a research grant going forward three years then some development I, I would think you could int- interest people commercially within that so time. in that time in 10 years though you could say that we're going to be losing more sort of pesticides that we're using before we get the, some of this oh, yeah, biocontrol I, coming along yeah I think that's a definite possibility yeah. that, that some of the active ingredients we've got will will have disappeared well, before we've actually got things uh, in place and this is the annoying thing about this isn't it that we're losing products at the minute yeah. without other ones coming along yeah. Yeah. There aren't things waiting in the in the side like yours at night, these biopesticides, oh, yeah. to replace them. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, the problem with the biopesticides is that they're being treated very much in the same way as the chemical pesticides, yeah. and that, that regulatory process is slowing down the development. Fascinating subject. Uh, Simon Leather there from uh, Harper Adams speaking to Andrew Ward. On to uh, agronomy then with Sean Sparling from Sparling Agronomy Services. Sean, this uh, bizarre weather... Uh, of late sunshine and then rain i suppose it's just a typical summer but uh, it's certainly having an effect in the fields isn't it well yeah it is a bit but i mean we are pushing towards that end of the season now you can see these winter wheat fields starting to go off um, and a lot of the second wheats or the stressy wheats you can see they've been starting to go whiter and paler for a couple of weeks now and an awful lot of that will be down to fusarium it'll be foot rot um, and when, because when they were stressy there in March, April in the drought, I think the rain probably came a little bit too late for them. So some of these wheats are like that. Now, we've also got this issue with the rain which hit at flowering. You can find fusarium starting to appear now on the ear. And there's every sort of fusarium out there. You can find them all. There's poe, avinaceum, there's graminarum, nivali, there's colmorum. You can find them all. But what we mustn't do is knee-jerk and think that that is absolutely dreadful. It's going to be full of mycotoxins because we've seen this before. A lot of it may well be microdochium, which doesn't produce any of the... Uh, the dons and the zons so it may not be half as bad as it appears to be whatever the case it's already done what is what is done is already done and there's nothing we can do to undo it um so we just have to keep our fingers crossed that actually the gods of harvest are kind to us but it is very interesting out there an awful lot of things are showing up now in beans and peas for example the heavy rain we've had over the last few weeks it's rotted quite a few of the of the flowers particularly in the later flowering fields of beans they've gone very black and pod set may well be affected by that But again, there's nothing we can do about it. All you can do is make sure you keep on top of the disease and make sure you keep on top of the bugs which are in there. Um, Sugar beet, I'm hearing very, very few, if any, reports of any disease. So there is absolutely no need to be going out there at the moment with fungicides on sugar beet. The thing you wait to do is see the disease in sugar beet. It's no good sticking something on, spending money 
for no reason at all. Um, and I, it usually happens somewhere around the end of July into August before we start seeing the first signs of any rust or mildew. And it's at that point you should go out and put a fungicide on. And don't forget the importance, we've been saying it all season, of manganese and magnesium as foliar top-ups in these fields. It's very interesting too when you, if we stay with sugar beet, where salt uh, has been applied, 750 litres of salt to control volunteer potatoes, um, it's such a tonic to sugar beet. Because sugar beet's an estuarine plant, it responds to salt, which mimics the activity of potassium. And within four or five days, it's almost miraculous to see the difference in some of these fields, particularly on the chalky fields, where perhaps the heavy rain has moved the nutrient down through the profile. If they're particularly short and shallow rooted, it's very, very noticeable in those fields. And as we said a few weeks ago, Nitrogen deficiency has been relatively widespread, but where those applications of manganese and magnesium and boron have been made, then it has helped to offset the effects of the nitrogen deficiency. And while we're saying we're talking about boron, on light sandy fields where you get heavy rain, it can happen very, very quickly. Um, you're looking for black lines within the leaves, um, particularly the older leaves, and these crops go a lot paler quite quickly and start to flop towards the floor. And if you try and pull a root out of the ground by gathering the leaves up, you'll find all the leaves will break off in your hand. If you hit that hard with a good dose of boron, it shouldn't make an awful lot of difference to yield. I've seen it before where we, it looked absolutely catastrophic in the middle of July. We put boron on, the crop was lifted uh, for the first lift of the season and it did over 28 tonnes to the acre. So make sure you're on top of these nutrient deficiencies. Don't let your guard down just because we're approaching summer holiday time. Keep out there and keep walking and keep looking. Very little activity from bugs and grubs in sugar beet, although they are absolutely full of ladybirds at the moment. And I understand what, well, the ladybirds clearly are eating aphids because the potatoes are full of ladybirds too. And there are levels of aphids out there in potatoes that need dealing with. So speak to your advisor about the best approach, whether that be the biscayas, the plenums, the topekas, which is a lot more expensive so you probably want to start with the cheaper one, see what you're left with and then go back with something else. But peas and beans, the botrytis risk is high. As long as you're covered, as long as those flowers are all covered with a decent fungicide, you should be okay. Remember the off-label approval for SL567A for downy mildew control. And also remember that azoxystrobin is actually quite useful on downy mildew in beans as well. So as far as all seed rate, the majority has now been uh, applied with glyphosate for pre-harvest use, where glyphosate was going to be the product of choice. Um, but there are still an awful lot of fields hanging on. Don't go charging in a week or 10 days early just because it's the time of year you normally do it. Check the these fields very carefully because as we said last week some of them are going very bleached but the seeds aren't turning some of them are still looking green but the seeds are turning get out there look at the middle pods and see if you've got uh, the odd black one and nearly all brown and you're at the perfect timing to go and put glyphosate on so things are still happening the blight is still a massive risk in thundery conditions like we are now please keep that interval to seven days and try and alternate your chemistry as you go because it's that alternation of chemistry which helps offset the dominant species and dominant strains of blight that are out there and starts to confuse them and it helps us get slightly in front of them rather than the other way around. So uh, we'll see what next week brings, Sean. Goodbye. Thank you. Sean Sparling, Sparling Agronomy Services. The UK's first dairy farm where the cows aren't slaughtered has found a permanent home. 
The Ahimsa Dairy Foundation business has just moved to land in Rutland, having been on temporary premises in Leicestershire previously. They produce raw milk at the moment and keep all of their cows until they die naturally. Nicola Pajieska is a co-founder of the foundation. We are an entirely slaughter-free dairy. So the, the milking cows are retired once the productive days are over. All of the oxen, um, they're all, all, you know, all the bull calves, they all grow up to, to, be, to be fully grown oxen. And they'll be working the land, so they'll be doing ploughing and harrowing and traction jobs around the farm. I mean, we hope one day to be able to do buggy rides around Rutland Water pulled by the oxen. We originally began as, as a campaign for, for, for better cow welfare, um, you know, in about 2007. And then people kept saying to us, well, where on earth can, can we get milk from? And, um, you know, our response was, well, actually, you can't. And that's how really, you know, that, that led us really to starting our own dairy. Originally, we were in partnership with an organic farm in Kent. Then we decided we wanted to become completely independent um, we, we had some land that we were we were renting for a peppercorn rent in Leicester, but you know really to secure our long term future we needed our own land. Um, we, we happened to to see this bit of land um, near Wing um, by accident one day, and it was it was a nice bit of organic land, and we thought you know this is, this is great. That's Nicola Pacieska, co-founder of the foundation, running the UK's first slaughter free dairy farm. It's been a few weeks now since we last heard from Nick Morris at British Sugar with an update on beets, so uh, let's put that right right now, shall we? Hello, Nick. Morning, Sean. How's things? Yeah, we're uh, we're really well, thank you. Uh, we're enjoying uh, what's been some really quite good weather for for sugar beet. It has to be said, it's been warm and warm sunshine, which is. Uh, what we like to see wall to wall really it really helps get the sugar beet going and uh, we've had the odd welcome bit of rain in fact on Thursday uh, evening we all probably experienced quite a, uh, a healthy thunderstorm and we had uh, over an inch of rain at Newark so that's really welcome and with uh, some more rain forecast next week with uh, sun in between it really is pushing the crop along yeah it's what you need really isn't it ideal the, the, the crop established very well we had some challenges on uh, some of the heavier land because, again, we went through uh, a winter which really didn't have very much cold weather in it, which normally helps break that heavier land down. But generally, uh, um, the, the crop looks um, exceptional on uh, many fields and very good on uh, on most of the rest. So I think uh, we've got very good plant populations and we've got you know a crop really with quite a lot of promise. Um, and we use that normal benchmark whereby... We uh, consider a quality crop to have met across the rows by the Lincolnshire show and looking around, a lot of the crops were uh, at least a week in advance of that. So if history's anything to go by, uh, we're certainly away to a good start. Um, we are uh, now starting to see some weed-beaten bolters just standing above the uh, above the crop. Very typical for this time of year, but it's just a timely reminder uh, for growers to eradicate those, preferably by hand-pulling with... Uh, uh, actually lifting them, breaking the stem and leaving them on the top to wilt. That's the, the best method of control. But um, prevention is uh, uh, the best method rather than having to get into a curative situation. We're probably about two weeks away from fungicide applications now. We apply fungicides in sugar beet when uh, disease enters the crop at disease onset. Um, and uh, this time last year... Uh, we were starting just to find some brown rust pustules developing on the crop. So even in a, um, a prophylactic 
week um, strategy in around two weeks' time, there'll be very much a significant yield benefit from applying a fungicide from the the uh, the, the strobilian effect on on the sugar beet crop. So, around end of July, definitely time to get the first full rate fungicide onto the crop. We had our BBRO open day on Tuesday this week at Bracebridge Heath, courtesy of Patrick Dean Limited, uh, and it was really great to see everyone uh, that came along. So thank you for all those in attendance. Um, and it was great to see the BBRO had put on a fantastic display of field uh, exhibits, and there was some uh, great discussions going on in the field, which uh, I was able to take part in as well. And it was fair to say neonicotinoids were uh, quite topical on the day, clearly, as uh, many people have seen in the press. Um, they've been under pressure for quite some time, particularly in the oilseed rape crop, um, but less so in sugar beet because, of course, sugar beet is a non-flowering crop. That said, um, it's now uh, uh, potentially um, in the at-risk category as well. Um, so a lot of growers just wanted to understand what that would mean for them should we not have neonicotinoids available to the sugar beet crop, um, either for 2018 or their, their, their further afield. And it was great just to be able to put people's minds at rest, uh, really, that thankfully tefluthrin, which is the um, pyrethroid element of a seed treatment, will still be available to the sugar beet crop and isn't currently uh, currently under question. And that gives fantastic control of soil pests. Um, and uh, that does then just leave a few other pests which... Uh, are currently controlled by neonicotinoids such as the leaf miner but thankfully we do have a pyrethroid we can apply uh, on a foliar basis from that as well. The main concern is um, controlling aphids uh, as they are vectors for, for virus and in particular Mises persicae which is the peach potato aphid. Um, they've been proven to uh, reduce yield by up to 50% so really quite um, quite significant to the sugar beet crop um, but it is quite weather dependent so we do a lot of um, monitoring and forecasting and that would be really important to continue doing that um, from a good husbandry perspective. Farm hygiene will become more important but the most significant areas uh, here around controlling uh, aphids will be the, we do have a potentially a new alternative aphicide, aphicide which we could register um, in the sugar beet crop which is really great news and it's currently used on um, other other crops in the arable rotation um, so there's some work ongoing to secure that and again um, we've been very successful in the sugar beet crop at developing resistance um, in uh, to a variety of different strains over the years and we do have some genetic material which could help us support that with aphids as well so it's uh, you know work, working progress and it's uh, it's not uh, it's not a case of doom by any stretch you know we've got a really great uh, industry and we'll absolutely make sure we continue to progress yield so um that's the um, the crop onto campaign nothing obviously to report as of yet other than to say that we're planning on starting uh, around the second or third week in September. So it'll be relatively early um, compared to last year, a couple of weeks earlier than last year. Our sugar stocks will be running very low by that time, so we will be starting uh, around the middle of September. And then just to mention that negotiations for the 2018 contract are still ongoing between British Sugar and NFU Sugar. So I'll hopefully be able to provide an update uh, on the outcome of that in uh, the next few weeks. Thank you. Nick Morris, British Sugar. What of grain prices? Henry Young is the man in the know from Open Field. The wheat market. Uh, well, this week is being driven by the US markets, firm on the back of the concerns uh, with the spring crop conditions. Uh, the spring wheat in the US um, is a main talking point at the moment, not just with the temperature-wise, but also with the concerns over the crop sizes. 
uh, the spring wheat trades uh, on the Minneapolis market, which I have spoken about before. But just to give you a bit more detail on this market, um, it is a 16% dry matter protein market, i.e. pucker wheat. That means if there isn't much about, the market will squeeze, which we are seeing at the moment. Uh, this is turning to drive the US markets higher and other global markets on the back of it as well. The funds last Tuesday, they were short of all commodities. So again, it has an impact on the market. The size of the US crop is currently in the focus as well. It's going to be a bit, bit of a tricky two weeks ahead. We've got another USDA report coming out in two weeks. We've got the, the crop condition data as well. So all this is having impacts on the market. Also, the corn silking, uh, well, is also being affected by those dry hot conditions at the moment. Just looking further afield, there's been little change uh, in Argentina, which did do a bit of business to Algeria this week. So again, th those exports are rolling again. Uh, Midweek, we did also see an Egyptian tender as well come in. Most of that was done by both Romania and Russia with some good values on that as well. But they were well below the US markets. Again, Egypt seems to be playing some games with imports, which we have heard that they do. Uh, they have currently rejected a maize cargo for ergot. Perhaps they're just playing games again. Time will tell. Ukraine, uh, the crop size is currently coming under fire for many different reasons, but largely implied by the smaller wheat and the barley crop and the unchanged corn. So crop sizes generally could come under scrutiny in that, in that next USDA report. As I said earlier, the UK harvest is well underway with winter barley. Early reports showing promising bushel weights in the, uh, the mid to high 60s with yields not disappointing. However, again, it is early stages, so we'll make assumptions as and when we get further into it. Just having a look at those prices, harvest wheat is 139 to 142, November 143 to 146, May 18, 149 to 152. And for those looking slightly further ahead, November 18 at the moment, 141 to 144. Again, those prices are better. Feed barley. The EU barley premiums, well, they're a little unchanged at the moment on the back of those markets uh, with France. Uh, they've left kind of fob values out, out of the Black Sea are going to come under a bit of pressure despite Ukraine doing some, some bits of trade. But it's not on China's spec, spec, so where is it going? So looking at those prices, harvest 111 to 115, November 121 to 123, May 125 to 129, and November 18, 113 to 118. The oil seed rate market has seen some support on the back of the USDA acreage and stock reports, which are below the private estimates, which we have seen. Also, the US soybean crop rating fell 1% on the back, so that's leaving it at 65% good to excellent, which is further back than it has been in, in historic years. So we're seeing also we're seeing a the Canadian canola rise to a four-year high that is covering short positions, so general strength in the uh, in the commodities. In the UK, we are starting to see uh, the oil seed rate harvested. It's still early to say, but we may know more next week. Having a look at those prices, harvest 301 to 302, November 312, and May 316 to 318. Who thought this time last year we'd be talking the 300s? Beans, any uh, old crop beans, well, they're looking for a home. So m most of them are actually covered. Attention is now turning to the new crop, with crops looking uh, for the recent weather patterns. New crop values have risen on the back of wheat futures, although compounders' uh, interest is few and far between, with other proteins having better values. Harvest feed is currently worth 158 to 160 with a pound a month carry, and um, human consumption premiums are a nominal £15. That's Henry Young from Open Field.
You might have heard this week there's fresh concern over the future of Louth's weekly cattle market. Plans for the site are being considered. Uh, the latest small livestock market to be under possible threat. The council is putting forward three proposals, either moving it, keeping it or scrapping it. Craig Leyland is leader of the council. We're proposing a consultation based on three options, which are replacement of the cattle market site uh, post the sale of the current site with an investment of £5 million in the new cattle market uh, building. Option two would be to seek uh, uh, an end to the obligation for East Lindsay operating or at least providing facilities uh, for a cattle market. That would involve an act of parliament. It's quite complicated and In the first instance, we would look to suspend the cattle market operation. Option three is to uh, maintain the current site um, and do the repairs that are necessary to make it fit for purpose. And that's why we're going out to consultation, because we know that the numbers, if you're talking about potential investment or loss of investment, £5 million, that's a considerable amount of money that the council could use to the benefit of residents in terms of improving economic activity in Louth and across the district. So that those... um, that those figures do tell their own tale and that's why we're going out to consultation because we want people to understand the situation we're in. It was um, meant with the best of intentions that we would replace the site but those numbers and the balance of that uh, now have changed. So rather than make a decision in ignorance it would be helpful if residents could be part of the consultation process uh, to inform our decision. Craig Leyland, leader of East Lindsay District Council. That consultation, by the way, starts a week tomorrow. Just before the weather, let's take a look at the latest livestock prices, and we may as well start at Louth. They reported an average of 207.36p this week. Of the lambs, 385 sold, averaging 206 pence and £87.68 per head. At Newark this week, 239 prime cattle were sold. Young bulls, they averaged 181.42p. Overage cattle averaged 163.03 pence, with a top cow being a limousine at 213.5 pence. Of the 3,671 sheep sold this week, lambs came to 246, hogs to 190p. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Today, possibility of showers, particularly in the afternoon, could be a heavy one in places. 21 the high, the wind from the northwest at about 10 miles an hour. Overnight, dry and clear. Lows of uh, around 11 Celsius, that wind continuing from the west-northwest, again about 10 miles an hour. Tomorrow, again, the possibility of a heavy shower first thing in the morning. Sunny spells come the afternoon. 19 the high, the wind from the west, again 10 to 15 miles an hour. And then it's uh, dry but cloudy overnight, Monday into Tuesday. Lows again of 11 Celsius, that wind continuing from the west. 10, maybe gusting at 20 miles an hour for a time. Through Tuesday, patchy cloud. That will bring showers later on uh, come the afternoon. 18 the high, the wind still from the west at about 5 miles an hour. And then it's clear skies overnight, Tuesday into Wednesday, pushing temperatures down just a little bit, 10 the low, the wind from the west-northwest at 5 miles an hour. And then the latter end of the week, well, a mixed bag really. Some cloud, could be mostly dry, though there is the possibility of a shower or two. A little bit cooler, 17 the high really towards the end of the week. And that wind continuing from the west. And that's the forecast. Next week, we're talking water management, the latest off-grid idea from JRH. It's all about off-grid at the moment, isn't it? Anyway, that's next week. Until then, have a good week's farming.